0: Hi, and welcome to Power of 10 on This Is HCD. My name's Andy Polaine, a designer, educator, writer, and currently Group Director of Client Evolution at Fjord. The Power of 10 is about design operating at many levels, from thoughtful detail to organizational transformation, and how that's kind of nested inside each other in a very sort of fractal way. So small things make a big difference, and the whole ecosystem makes itself felt through lots of small details. My guest today is Aaron Dignan, founder and CEO of of The Ready, a global organizational transformation and coaching practice. He helps companies large and small adopt new forms of self-organization and dynamic teaming and is also the author of an excellent book called Brave New Work. I'm actually going to start by reading the intro to the epilogue of the book because it kind of frames the, the, the rationale for everything else. Deep down, I think we all have a pretty good idea of what will happen if we don't change how we work. We're watching it unfold in slow motion right now. Massive bureaucracies lacking conscience or purpose. startups meant to disrupt the status quo, unintentionally entrenching it. Rampant inequality. Wage stagnation. Workers displaced by technology funded with the profits from their labor. Nationalism. Hacked democracy. A stock market driven more by policy and punditry than performance. And the coup de gras, accelerating climate change that threatens the safety and security of billions of people. All of it the result of our mindless adherence to the ways of the past, to an operating system that fundamentally misunderstands complexity and human nature. This isn't the uplifting capitalism of a burgeoning economy, it's advanced capitalism at its best and crony capitalism at its worst. That future doesn't work for me. Somehow we have to reconcile that 20th century bureaucracy and capitalism got us here, but they won't get us where we need to go unless they and we evolve. At the core of Aaron's book of Brave New Work is the OS canvas. And although the epilogue that I just read is really the, um, the call to arms, The OS Canvas is the structural kind of part of the way to approach it. And the way it's structured is it's got 12 boxes in it. Um, So it's very easy, very just kind of put up, up on the wall. And those boxes are purpose, so how we orient and steer. Authority, how we share power and make decisions. Structure, how we organize and team. Strategy, how we plan and prioritize. Resources, how we invest our time and money. Innovation, how we learn and evolve. Workflow how we divide and do the work. Meetings, how we convene and coordinate. Information, how we share and use data. Membership, how we define and cultivate relationships. Mastery, how we grow and mature. And compensation, how we pay and provide. In the OS Canvas, what he does is then look through these tensions and practices. So what's the tension? What is it that is is preventing you from being positive or people positive or complexity conscious in either one of these? So that might be something like uh, we spend too much time trying to predict the future, and then what are the practices that you might do as a response? And some of those things are um, little experiments that you can do, so uh, working public by making workflow and work in progress visible to other teams. You know, so that could be something around the tension in meetings and communications. And I'm reading here from these tension and practice cards that I also got when I bought the book, which is very nice. But you can see them also on the ready, and I'll put some sh- links to the show notes. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I've just read the, the opening bit of your epilogue, which is really about painting a pretty dark and dismal future of, the, of work, <laughs> which I think most of us can probably relate to as well. So I'm guessing, was that the trigger for the book? Well, how did you get to kind of where you are now?
1: Yeah, it's funny, actually. I wanted I wanted to write the fourth part of the book, that epilogue, before I wanted to write the rest of it. And I think I sort of had to write the rest of it to get the excuse to, to say the things at the end. But really, I don't know, I just feel like we're in a very important moment right now, not just this year, but maybe this decade, where we can see the ways of the past kind of you know failing us, uh, these bureaucracies, these hierarchies, these old versions of power, you know, failing us ecologically, failing us politically, failing us socially, and even in business, you know, not really living up to, to everything that we think it can be. So it does feel like we have a choice, right, to sort of recede back into the ways of the past and double down on, on some of the, you know, traditions and ways of working that have got us here, or to, you know, embark on something new, uh, or at least something that's a little bit novel to most of us. So that was, yeah, that was sort of where my head was at, was that the book was Maybe a chance to try to move things, you know, nudge things in one direction uh, versus the other. And I, I came to this really, I would say, almost accidentally. I mean, I, I have followed questions my entire career. I've followed my curiosity. And while I used to be curious about technology and disruption and things that were changing, you know, culture and the world, I have become more and more enamored with the change itself in the last decade of my life and our inability to adapt at scale, our inability to have important institutions continually evolve and refine themselves in a way that feels both kind of strategically relevant but also humanist. And so that's kind of been my my journey is basically going from interested in the things causing the change to interested in the change itself and how we can navigate that as founders, as leaders, as team members, and just as citizens, frankly.
0: Yeah, I mean I've had a, a similar path where I think I used to design interactive things. And then I sort of switched to thinking about organisations actually, which sort of brought me into service design, and and then thinking about designing services. And then I sort of come back to organisations, but actually more recently in the last few years, realised that most of the conversations I were having was having with clients weren't kind of really about their organisation as such. It was all people stuff, um, <laughs> and and most of the things that kind of got in the way was people stuff as well. It was quite a lot of fear, mostly I think, and, and you know, well-founded fear. Sure. Um, you know, there's a kind of bit in your, <laughs> in the book, and I've seen you talk about this about the um, the sabotage document. Can you just very briefly talk about this because it was just remarkable?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, several years ago, uh, this document was declassified, and basically, what it is is it's a guide to simple sabotage that was written by the precursor to the CIA in the United States, and their um, their desire was to help people that were sort of inside enemy lines to slow down and destabilize and ultimately undermine businesses that were, you know, on the other side of the war. And so they they crafted these these recommendations and because they haven't been declassified for decades and decades, when we finally got to read them, everybody, you know, that sort of runs in the circles I run in was kind of flabbergasted because it describes these things that we all do at work all the time. It talks about creating committees to make decisions and making them as large as possible and relitigating decisions after the meeting around the water cooler or slack or what have you and haggling over the precise wording of communications and all these things that are sort of normal inside large organizations today. And so I just remark at the idea that, you know, somehow in the last eighty years work has become indistinguishable from sabotage and how odd and, and very bizarre that is. It is. It's, it's, uh, I read it and
0: I've worked in several large organizations. <laughs> I'll put a link to it in the show notes because it's It's kind of hilarious and also um, sort of face palming to read it. I mean, going back to the, you know, I was just talking about people. Um, you talk about complexity conscious, which I, I kind of wrote about recently too, and this difference between complicated and complex, and also being people positive. And they're the two threads that kind of run all the way through the OS canvas that you've created. Can you just talk about what you mean about those two things?
1: Yeah, yeah. I was right from the get-go with the book, I was struggling to help articulate what are the mindsets and the kind of foundational understandings that you know this gaggle of companies that I followed seemed to have. And it felt to me like when you went into the worlds of agile or lean or new ways of working, there were just so many things to wrap your head around, different you know terms and phrases and ideas and principles and heuristics and methods and it just felt like a lot. And so what I wanted to do is really distill all that down to a couple mindsets that maybe would would help you um, make decisions even without all that lexicon and all that backstory. So what I found basically when I looked at all the all the methods and practices and, and principles that these companies were using was that they all really came from one of two places: either a people positive place, which is the belief that people generally are worthy of trust and respect, right? That they are motivated not by carrots and sticks, but by autonomy and mastery and purpose and connectedness and all the things that we've heard in self-determination theory and psychology over the years. That people are chameleons, right? That we, that we kind yeah. of adapt to a large degree to the environment we're in. And so it's not really the fish that are the problem, it's the aquarium. Um, and so that people positive idea really just, it makes you make decisions that give people the benefit of the doubt. Like, you know, should we have people punch in and punch out their hours? Well, is that people positive? Not really, right? It Mm. assumes the worst. It assumes that everybody's a liar. And so how do we actually get people to show up the way we expect them to show up? A lot of that has to do with how we treat them. So that was the people positive one. And you, and I just saw so many different examples of that kind of, you know, humanist agenda, Popping up. And then the, the complexity conscious one was this idea that, you know, there are many different contexts that we work in in the world. And the organization as a context of people coming together is quite a complex one. And what I mean by that is it's not predictable, it's not linear, it's not causal, it's dispositional, it's uncertain, it will surprise you. Um, it's more akin to gardening or, or the weather or something that, you know, emerges over time that you can't fix, that you can't solve. And so when we approach organizations with you know, Gantt charts and linear change processes and values posters and coffee mugs, um, we're treating the system like it's a watch when it's not. And so this idea of complexity conscious was organizations that realize that both the firm and the market are a little bit uncertain and to a certain degree unknowable. And so mm-hmm. the only way to proceed is with a very test and learn, agile, inquisitory, curious, emergent, approach and that's where you'd see you know the kind of very aggressive examples of like facebook running ten thousand versions of facebook at once just to see like what works what happens when we try x y and z and what i like about the two of them together is that when you hold them in contrast if you did either one at the expense of the other you would ultimately fail or at least you would fail humanity so you you know you see examples of companies that are learning machines but at the expense of their own employees at the expense of their own customers in many cases and you see companies that are very humanist uh, and extremely community oriented and centric but they can't get anything done like they're not actually affecting change in culture they're not they're not innovating they're not making anything really all that interesting but they're certainly very kind. And so the trick is, like, how do you get those two to hold each other in balance, that we are learning as fast and, and as vibrantly as we can, that we've created this ecology of, of emergence and learning and, and facilitated, you know, exploration. And we're not doing that to the point where we, the humans that are both doing and receiving the work, are somehow undermined.
0: Why do you think this is so hard? Because you know, listening to what you say, and you know that you're absolutely saying everything that I totally believe too. And you know, I had that experience of reading the book of, of kind of um, inspiration and envy because uh, you know it's, it was very inspiring. But it's also lots of things I've kind of written and talked about myself. But you put it together really nicely, and I was thinking, oh, I wish I'd written <laughs> that book. Um, <laughs> which is always a good sign. I was probably really narcissistic, but I, uh, it was really brilliantly structured. But then reading it, you kind of think, well, yeah, why are well, we? I mean, hard about like, this. Yeah, well, I mean, there's that legacy of the industrial revolution and the industrial way of thinking and thinking of companies as factories and machines. But it's been a while
1: since then. Um, and a very long while.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and so, why, you know, what's your feeling um, of why this is so hard?
1: I think there's a few reasons. One is that I think the degree to which a lot of this stuff is unconscious and not considered it can't be overstated the reality is that for most people that are not you and me that are not sitting and thinking and meditating on the way we work they're busy they've got you know they have back to back meetings and back to back projects and real job security on the line and other things going on that mean that like the time to consider how we work at a very meta level as we like to do that's a privilege and that's the exception to the rule most people are not thinking about the way they're meeting they're not thinking about the way they're making decisions they're not thinking about the way they're structuring teams they're just doing it just to keep heads above water and to keep things moving forward and i totally empathize with that actually but i think the the point here is really when we're not conscious about what we're doing when we're not choosing it then it's inherited and so i think that's the number one issue is just actually awareness of the fact that this is all made up and we can change it if we want to yeah. and is it serving us right like that you know that is basically the idea and then the other part of it is is what you started to scratch at which is there's a very real ego and identity transition that's part of this part of considering and acknowledging some of this that is difficult that is challenging that requires you know bravery as the book's title mm. um, alludes to and you know even something as simple as saying like oh yeah the market and the world is uncertain and unpredictable and therefore i have to be humble in my expertise yeah, that's hard. You know, people enjoy being an expert. They enjoy saying like, "I know the answers," and this is the way. And they enjoy being the boss who reviews things and says yes and no. And so there is a lot of who am I if not the one who decides, if not the one who judges, if not the one who knows.
0: It's not really in the vocabulary of an MBA and project management and stuff either.
1: Not at all. Yeah. Well, and, and I would actually say, yeah, that's the third thing. Right? Is that not only do we not think about it, and not only do we have you know some evolution that we need to go through personally to to manage it. But there's also just a lot of systems and structures reinforcing it from mm. the economic operating system that we work in that demands short-term results and never-ending growth to the educational system that you know requires compliance and looking for the one best way and the solution mm. all the time. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of headwind uh, in terms of just the, the apparatus around us that holds us to this way of
0: working. It's funny. I was thinking about this this morning, actually. And you know, there's a bit in the book where you're talking. I think the the company that you label as Control Inc. And you're you're working with them for weeks or months, and they're saying, "So when are we going to do the real work?" And at some point, you go, "Well, no, this is the real work." But we're just talking to the teams. And I think it's almost like um, it's like people saying, oh, I'm too stressed to meditate."
1: I don't, exactly. I don't, and
0: it's this kind of very, bizar- I mean, it's a very bizarre thing. We're too busy working to think about how we work. It's quite remarkable when, when you think about it. It's just like you say in Bolt saying, oh, I'm too busy running to kind of think about how I sprint. I mean, it's just crazy, right?
1: It's a very human pattern. And it's funny because the, the advice against it has come out over and over in different ways, right? The old saying, you know, that was attributed to like Lincoln's time of if I had five minutes to cut down a tree, I'd spend four minutes sharpening my ax, you know, that's the same wisdom. The wisdom of like the method matters, and and the tools matter, and the way matters more than just the activity. And then my favorite comic from a little while ago you know these folks pushing a cart up a hill with square wheels, Mm -hmm. and there is someone offering a round wheel, and they're like, "No, we don't have time for that." You know, it's (laughs) like we it's a very human thing, and I I I do it too. I mean, I think it's I would almost put it on the order of a cognitive bias that when we're really in it, when we're really in the shit, we don't want to pull out, we don't want to look up, we somehow think we have to press on. And so that's something to fight and I think you know you fight it 30 minutes a week one hour a week right just do the retrospective at the end of the week do the take the moment at the end of the meeting to just ask what'd you notice what can we do better I think finding those little pockets is a great way to start
0: well talking of ways of starting one of the things that you know you, you earn the right to say the thing at the end because the OS canvas is um, is a really good structure through which you you share a lot of what's clearly your war stories. I just want to sort of come to something here because we, we talked a lot before about all the different structures and things and, and frameworks get talked about a lot in business. Right? Here's, we've got this kind of innovation framework, got this framework and so on and so forth. The frameworks always seem to me to fail because they're an abstraction of, the, right, of the, the messiness of the real thing. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. Um, but this isn't this. So tell me about how you arrived at this, apart from the fact that Canvas is obviously a very popular thing to do, but they're also it's there's something different about this uh, to just the framework, right? It's not that you could just execute this and everything's going to be fine.
1: Right. Well, I mean, for starters, there's no answers in it. We, you know, we wanted to create a mirror more than a framework. And so what we were looking for is, you know, if you're looking in the mirror, you're reflecting, you're noticing, right? And so the thought was, where should we focus our attention when we reflect, when we notice? And because it's such a big field, right? When people start to really think about how they work and how they organize, they're like, oh, my God, there's a million places to start. Where should we start? And so what we did is we collected the principles and the practices of these many firms, I think close to 70 that we looked at for the book. And as we would look, we would say, you know, what is different about this company? What is, what is unique that allows them to kind of buck the trend of bureaucracy in some way, shape, or form? And when we found something, we would sort of pin it to the wall. Okay, here's a practice. Here's a way of meeting. Here's a way of deciding. Here's a way of thinking about, you know, power. Here's a way of thinking about compensation. And as we pin them to the wall, both virtually and physically, they started to coalesce around these spaces. And so we realized, oh, these spaces are, you know, the front. These are the, the areas that are most in flux in terms of the future of work. They're not comprehensive. They're not exhaustive. They're not every possible thing you have to figure out at work. They're just the 12 spaces that we found when we looked at like, where are things really being shaken up? And so it's a mirror. It's 12 boxes that look at you and say, Hey, what do you believe about authority? And what do you actually do? What do you believe about workflow, and what do you actually do? What do you believe about mastery and learning and development? What do you actually do? And then once you can articulate that to yourself, then to say, "How's that going for you?" <laughs> you know, it's almost like a therapist, right? It's it a therapist in the form of a framework. Right, yeah. So, yeah, how's that going for you? You know, does it? My wife's dad used to say uh, when she was little, "Does it hurt when you do that?" Yeah, don't do that then. <laughs> 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 so it, it sort of is that I think, and and in that way, it's not a framework; it's really just a vessel. Uh, that wants to collect some consciousness and some awareness, and help us be more deliberate about uh, the way we work when we're designing it or trying new things. So I want to ask you something here because
0: I mean I've had several clients where there's a kind of where you know I could imagine talking about this with them. I imagine you get this a lot. There's lots of nods. Everyone has, there's usually some sort of shameful kind of giggles and oh yeah yeah. And I've had also clients who you know just looked through their calendars. One of the biggest yeah. things they they have the problem with is focus, right? And we want to do this new thing. Okay, you need to clear your calendars for a week. Oh, well, we can't afford to do that. It goes back to that, what we were just saying before. But a thing that creeps in is a um, kind of sense of learned helplessness where we can't do anything else. And sure. I'm interested about kind of how you tackle that.
1: Well, I think one of the reasons that I think a lot of this stuff, a lot of change struggles is that it happens to people even when we say that it doesn't, it really kind of does. And it's sort of like, you know, you're going to learn these agile methods or you're going to, you know, we're going to change this structure and you're a part of that. Or there's a lot of things happening that are additional to what's going on. So the first thing that I always like to start with is just for every team, what are the tensions that are holding them back from doing their best work in their own opinion? And wouldn't they like to try changing that stuff? And I just find that when people are working on the thing that's driving them nuts, they find more time than when they're working on the thing that is important for the organization, uh-huh. um, and so we just start with that. We start with what is present and alive for real people in their real teams, and if they want to start there, then that'll help us build up a little bit of momentum and a little bit of belief. Frankly, that like something can happen, something can be done. So I think that's I think that's definitely a part of it. And then the other two parts of it are you know a, if you're doing this work effectively. It's happening in the actual work. It's not some other, you know, yeah, you might do an off-site here or there. You might take an hour here or there. But like most of this is in the meeting, in the discussion, in the moment, in the brainstorm. We're going to do it differently. So to me, it doesn't take away from the work. In many cases, it streamlines it. It speeds it up. And you see that with teams that are, you know, in the early weeks and months of this work. They're like, oh, wow, you know, I'm getting time back. I'm not, it's not that I'm losing time. I'm actually, we're getting faster. We're getting more effective. It just took a little bit of practice. So the first few tries are rough. um, And then later on, things get, you know, quite good. So it's sort of like, you know, practice and, and go slow to go fast kind of thing. And then the last thing is, you know, we always talk about start by stopping. One of the best ways to get started to get rid of bureaucracy is actually to get rid of things, not to add things, right? So get rid of that travel policy, get rid of that meeting, get rid of that structure and just let it breathe for a minute before we do anything. And that feels really counterintuitive, but is obviously quite freeing and requires no additional commitments. (laughs)
0: It's really true. I mean, I I think I might've said this in the previous podcast as well, but I get um, often asked, you know, what do we need to do to be more innovative and, and whenever I frame the question the other way around, well, what, what's getting in the way of it happening spontaneously? All the answers come, you know, and I, it's quite remarkable of, all, oh, well, you know, we have too many meetings and we're all in different offices and stuff. And um, it's all, the knowledge is kind of there. The pain is certainly there, I think. For sure. I've got a question for you. You do, you do sort of allude to it in the book or answer it, actually, but um, let's ask it here, which is, how do you answer the question from the CEO or the senior stakeholder, whoever's employed you, let's say, who says... Okay, so what's the plan then? Let's see the plan. How's this going to turn out? How am I going to know this is going to work?
1: Yeah, the plan question is infamous. Um, you know, a couple things happen there. One, we try to zoom back and talk about, you know, what is, what is knowable and what is unknowable and what is the true nature of an organization, right? So the nature of an organization is everybody is not going through at this in the same pace and the same speed and the same steps. What we're looking for is not an end state. Right, we're not looking to be done implementing X. We're looking for a continuous participatory change state. We're looking for the state of this organization keeps getting better all by itself. And so that is a very different thing to try to strive for. So all we're doing is really trying to create patterns. We're trying to poke the bear and see what happens. And if we like what happens, do more of that. And if we don't like what happens, do less of that. And so to me, it is you know I sort of liken it to to gardening or cooking or anything where you're kind of in dialogue with the subject matter. We're just going to be playing, and if things are getting better, we're succeeding, and we'll keep playing. And so often with folks that are looking for a plan, we'll say, you know, instead of a plan, why don't we just start a few experiments that are sort of principled experiments where we have a very strong opinion about what might happen with tight timelines and safe-to-try structure and scale and learning metrics, and we'll know very quickly if we're moving in the right direction. And wouldn't that be better than you know, a Gantt chart and a 16-page and a plan that is ultimately a lie committed to paper. And for the ones that get that, uh, we proceed. And, and frankly, for the ones that are not ready to hear that, you know, there's plenty of other work to do. So we're not, uh, we're not really in the business of convincing anymore. We really just like to start with where people are at. And if, if where they're at is, you know, they need everything to have a plan, then, you know, they might need to do more work, thinking and reading and experiencing complexity before they're ready to really do this. And vice versa. Maybe if we ask them to start with their own tension, they might be quite willing to launch an experiment or an intervention to try to make some change. So we just sort of poke at it from a few angles like that.
0: There is the story in the book where the, the person says, Yes, okay, but I can't go back to my boss with that. I need a plan.
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes sometimes you do go around and around and around. And that's our you know, it's that, that's a good time to stop.
0: So on Power of Ten, I talk about you know this idea of Design and it's not just design, really, but kind of working at lots of different levels. It's very fractal in the sense that you know, you, you as you start working your way up, we go, well, that thing is nested inside this thing, and it's nested inside this thing, and they all—that's the nature of complexity, right? They all kind of work in an ecosystem and with each other. But one of the things I think that's interesting, and you, you talk about, I mean, it's really what the OS canvas is, is about, is there are small things you can change within the system that actually start to change the whole system. And so my, my final question for you is, what one small thing, and it, it doesn't have to be in business, it could be something else in, in life, do you think has either been so well designed that it kind of changed everything or should be redesigned or rethought in order to have a massive change?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, for the left field answer is how we board airplanes. <laughs> uh, how, we, how We Board Airplanes is, for the most part, with a few airline exceptions, complete hogwash. Like it's, it's a, it flies in the face of the science. It flies in the face of the human experience. It is just bad all the way around.
0: You've been flying a lot recently.
1: Yeah, I have, Yeah, obviously. Um, so that one I think is probably my, my funny answer. And then I think inside business, honestly, the thing that goes a long way is actually just focusing on a little bit more equal talk time you know just really looking at like who needs to step up and step back so that voices are heard more equivalently it's funny uh, how simple that is but what a difference it makes in terms of what we hear and how we listen and what kind of spaces are made and who's included so i think that that's one that i like to notice and point out when i see it
0: yeah that's a very good one it's also so overdue right
1: <laughs> yeah very much so a few centuries you know <laughs>
0: Um, listen I'd love to I know you've got to go I'd love to have you back on and talk about you know since you've written the book what you've learned since or what you would like to have kind of put in or what would be a sort of addendum to it or what what's been their responses to it as well
1: oh yeah part two no that'll be good because we're, we're just starting to see the you know the reactions and the results and and some new projects spun up on the back of it so we'll have really good uh you know learnings probably to share in the coming
0: months brilliant okay well you're on i'm gonna hold you to that
1: all right fantastic. aaron
0: thank you very much indeed
1: yeah likewise talk soon
0: thanks for listening to power of 10 if you want to learn more about other shows on the this is hcd network visit this is hcd.com where you'll find ProdPod with adrian tan ethnopod with dr john curran and bringing design closer with jerry scullion You'll also find the transcripts and links mentioned in the show and where you can also sign up to our newsletter, join our Slack channel to connect with other designers all around the world. My name is Andy Pallain. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.